Almost half of all Americans say they feel sleepy during the day between three and seven days per week. Between 10 to 30% of adults struggle with chronic insomnia. The difference between an exhausted, irritable, and angry you and a happy you sometimes comes down to just how good your sleep is. So the question is, how do you go from not sleeping well and being exhausted to sleeping your best? In this episode, we are joined with Amir Khan, founder of Setu, and a veteran and board certified sleep doctor. We will hear about best sleep strategies, how to deal with anxiety, and stress that's affecting your sleep. Even what to do if you keep waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning. Tons in this episode. If you like this, please subscribe because we're making new episodes every week. Let's stay curious to learn about Amir and how to sleep well. And then you started playing with uh, the idea of pediatric neurology. And so that's where we're at, where you realize that um, to a large extent, a lot of pe- pediatric illnesses came down to um, sleep. And so we're picking up from there. We were talking before this, so it sucks for everybody who doesn't get to hear that, <laughs> but I'm picking it up at the top. When I came out into clinical practice after finishing my training in neurology, um, when I started seeing patients on my own, I realized that with all these challenging problems that kids have that are neurological, almost all of them brought in some aspect of a sleep issue that I was not trained in as part of my neurology training, which was done by the, the best people in the country, the those who were an authority on the subject. They taught me everything but sleep. And so prior to coming out into practice, I had had these discussions with my mentor, my professor, who was one of the pioneers of pediatric neurology about what I should do in the future or should I get any further training? And sleep was one of the subjects that came up because there was a big uh, training program in Minneapolis where I trained. And he said, eh, find something more productive. You know, who, who worries about sleep? Uh, I, I stay up at night and sip whiskey and write my textbook on neurology. So, um, yeah, I, so he, he told me a few other things to do, which were would be better for me. Uh, but he swayed me away from sleep. But then w- when I arrived in, in real life practice and started seeing patients on my own, it was a whole different story. So to take that further from there, uh, interestingly, what happened was I was working in this office, a large medical group. Uh, I was the only child neurologist for them. They had hired their first one. I was seeing a lot of kids. My next door, uh, the office right next door to me was was that of a pulmonologist, a lung specialist. And he used to look at sleep studies that were done in children he used to deal with kids sleep problems so i talked to him about this issue he said well why don't you come sit with me when i look at these sleep studies and that started a whole new journey for me so that that that's how you know that's how i got into sleep and so thanks to that guy um that he uh helped me get into this this field and so there, there was no turning back from there. So uh, I got training. I went to seminars. I went to workshops. I went to um, conferences. I read, and then eventually, uh, I, I was still doing neurology and getting better at sleep problems. I uh, learned mostly on my own. Then came an opportunity out of nowhere, and this opportunity was that you you need board certification as a as a physician. You need to be certified. You take these tests, which 
uh, give you that kind of credibility that you really have learned your subject and you know what you're talking about and so on. So in order to be considered a sleep specialist and certify, uh, you had to go through formal training in sleep. But comes along a, 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 an opportunity in a sense that that board that certified sleep doctors disbanded itself. And they said, okay, we're merging into this, you know, we're creating a whole new system of certifying doctors in sleep. And those doctors who have been practicing and learning sleep can be grandfathered in if they take the test in the next two, three years. After that, everybody will have to do a longer formal training. So I was in that part of the career that I couldn't just, you know, taking care of my family and kids and so on, so many responsibilities, I couldn't just go away and go into training again. So that that was again, another breakthrough, God-given God or however you want to look at it. And I got certified and started switching over my practice more and more into sleep. And here I am, uh, years and years later. So I, I have like a, a hypothesis or a theory that like what people get into, it's a matter of like, it's it's the interest, it's the impact of it, and then it's the their aptitude for it. So what was the thing that you saw that made you feel like sleep was going to be something that you could have an outsized impact in? Was it the fact that like your advisor was like, hey, you know, no one, like it's kind of like was a new feel, like kind of like a blue ocean. But like, what was the thing that really made you like really dedicate your life to it? Well, first of all, I didn't have an advisor. <laughs> uh, so uh, nobody to advise me. And uh, I had to make these decisions myself. Okay. But it was... Um, it was more of an instinct, just like you said, an aptitude, a, it, this is kind of, it pulls you in. So you start do you start doing something. And if you feel like you're more comfortable with it, that's part of it. And then secondly, I was coming from a field that was intellectually very challenging. Uh, I really liked it. I still like it. Uh, that's neurology. Uh, and but unfortunately, what happened with my experience in neurology was that, especially with kids, that parents are extremely frustrated with their children's neurological problems. Very often, these are very sad, terrible stories and, and sometimes lifelong, sometimes things keep getting worse and so on. So it's very hard, hard to find a point where people are people say to you, Oh, thank you, doctor. You did such a wonderful job. Okay. And on the other side, I mean, to, to for the, the physician to feel like, really, am I making a difference in this family's life? Am I really doing what I became a physician for? Am I making a difference? Come to the sleep aspect of it, it was very straightforward. You instantly, not, not necessarily instantly, but you very quickly make people, you, you do the right thing, the person's life changes, whether it's a child, whether it's a grown-up, whoever it is. And now, having done this for many years, looking back, I, I tell everybody, I'm so proud to be in a medical specialty where I don't have to send you to have an operation, so to go under the knife. And I, I don't really have to give you any kind of a chemical, i.e. a medicine, 
that could potentially be harmful for you in the long run or or immediately and still improve your quality of life there's not very many things in medicine not many specialties not not many people not many medical doctors who can claim to do that right mm -hmm. so a major part of what i do is talking to people understanding what's happening to them and giving them the right advice and oftentimes modifying things there are tests to do and treatments to give and oftentimes there are devices high tech and low tech all kinds of things that will make a major change in a person's life but it's such a major change it affects people's relationships and jobs and happiness and so many things so you can see you know you you made an intervention you helped somebody along you listen to them you talk to them you convince them and here they are things are so much better and they tell you so things are so much better and that's so much more professional satisfaction so much mm -hmm. gra gratitude for thank god i'm doing this i've, I've talked so, to a yeah i've talked to a lot of doctors and that that is like the commonality i was talking to a cardiovascular person doctor i don't know why i did that but um he said that the thing he liked is that he'd see someone like having a, a cardiac problem and he put a stint in and it would, it would open up and it was just like they, their lives came back. And so I think that's, which is it's one of the benefits of the medical field where when you find that, that part that you really love, you have that structure where you can, you like an outside person can see, oh, that there's a reason why they're great at this. Um, which is unfortunate. There's like, people can't easily find that in other fields. So, but it's just like a, all that work, all that, that, that sacrifice, all those textbooks that you had to like mentally chew through for like a better part of a decade. Um, it, it's nice that at the end you have something that it can be so meaningful. Um, uh, so I was, I was reading a, a biography on, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, which S is actually not his middle name, but anyways, uh, he was talking about how Napoleon would say he only needed like four hours of sleep a night. And Grant was saying essentially that like he thought that was stupid. Like he, he was taking like he, he was basically saying that Napoleon would have to take naps throughout the day because you need a certain amount. And so I'm curious of of the two of the two, what is like a good amount of sleep? And then how do you know if it's a good amount of sleep? Was, was, so is Grant right? And that like typically if you get your four hours of sleep a night, you're probably going to take a nap at like two. Or was Napoleon just like this really weird guy who only needed four hours of sleep and that was optimal for him? Like, how does that actually work? Like how? Who's right, Grant or Napoleon in this situation? Great question. Uh, so what we don't know about these famous people is what was their health truly like, hmm. right? Uh, I mean, we don't know if they had blood sugar problems or heart problems or high blood pressure or certainly they may, it's very likely they had some mental health issues <laughs> just, just from the, the jobs that they did. And, and so that's a whole, actually, let, let's not get into that because it's a whole different discussion of how uh, famous people aren't really mentally stable very often. Yes, yeah. sometimes. I think <laughs> for, for Grant, it's uh, it feels different for Grant because he was so bad at everything else in life. Like he was literally the worst store clerk in Galena, Illinois, where everyone would try and like swindle him and stuff. Like so his family had to employ him because he just was bad at everything. Yeah. But then when there's a war, he just he knew how to put things into place where things would play out. So I, I think that's like that's interesting versus like a Napoleon guy. I mean, they literally call it the Napoleon complex. <laughs> so he's yeah. like emperor of, of France and Europe and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd have to really. Uh, I mean, if you've read biographies of these people, 
you it gets you to think about what their true personalities were like mm -hmm. because you know we we read about their what they did in life like you're asking me what i how i got into what i do and so on so i i tell you a story what you don't know is what what's behind that story right mm -hmm. how i i live my life every day and what my work does to my health and what my mental health is like and so on so to move away from that a little bit so the question is how do you know how much sleep you need if you consistently get a certain amount of sleep and you feel rested and refreshed and you feel like i can i i can function at my best all day this way that's really how you know how much sleep you need uh, you don't need a scientist or a sleep doctor to tell you how many hours of sleep you need what's what gets thrown around a lot uh you need eight hours of sleep per night is based on studies that say 90 percent of people feel rested and refreshed and alert after eight hours of sleep there are still 10 percent out of that 100 that, who are different and different to the extent that they may need only five hours of sleep or they may need as much as 10 hours of sleep and they're still normal it's just that, that their body works differently and those studies that say eight hours of sleep are now getting old and life has changed and society has changed. And so going back to the pre-artificial light life, the average was nine hours of sleep in the United States. So people slept nine or more hours per night. And then it got into eight hours and an average of seven hours. And now it's somewhere around six and a half hours in, hmm. in the 21st century. So... <clears throat> but that is what people get not necessarily what people need so if you truly want to know how much you need because you realize that sleep is so important for your life and your health and your everyday functioning then you would want a consistent period of time where you can assess how many hours of sleep you need you would also want to assess what time of the day you get the most sleepy and what time of the day when you wake up you feel the best which is your circadian rhythm so it's supposed to be something but if if your body doesn't work how i tell you how it's supposed to be then you are the one who can best judge how your body works best the so there are good and bad things with that the good thing is if you recognize how much sleep you need and how your body works best and what time you go to bed and what time you wake up works best for you then you can adapt your life to according to that if you want so these days there are so many opportunities people who like going to bed really late they go to sleep at three in the morning and would like to sleep until 11 or noon they still can have a productive life and work and be a part of productive part of society. So that has changed in the last 20, 30, 50 years. What has not changed and is not going to change, change is how the body is designed to function to begin with. Okay. So we can adapt it to do certain things. We can make the most of however we find our body works the best. But how our body works the best as compared to how it's designed to work the best are slightly different. And so my job when you come talk to me is to find out 
what's working for you and what's not working for you and how it's supposed to be and then bridge that gap as much as we can right so given genetics and given your your life circumstances and given your background and given your needs what is it that we can do to improve upon how your body is wanting to work at the present time good or bad and how it would work the best based on how it's designed so I an mean, analogy would be you have um you have a jeep and it's supposed to be a four-wheel drive and you're you're racing jeeps so maybe you like to drive fast in a jeep but maybe it doesn't you know drive so well that way so then we find out okay this is how it's designed this is how it's supposed to function at its best now how can we bridge that gap in how you want to use it how you think it works best for you and then how we can make it work the best so that's where the job of a person helping you with sleep issues comes in. that makes sense about when i interact with people sometimes i just like to think of people as brains and mech suits and so the Jeep analogy makes sense to me in that, uh, like we're, we're kind of just like biological mech suits, you know, with a little, I mean, if you looked at like the brain with all the little tendrils going out, the nerve, the nervous system and whatnot, it, it, it really does look like a, a mech suit. I mean, anyone up there listening to like Google ad, and then I'm sorry for the images you'll see if they <laughs> like, but I mean, that's basically what it looks like. Um, yeah. so we have circadian rhythms as a, a big thing. So go to bed, wake up at similar times. Um, what are other mechanisms that seem to have a, a good impact on improving a person's quality of sleep? So um, in order to get the, so there's two, two parts to when you say good sleep, there are two parts to good sleep. One part is uh, how to get the duration of sleep that your body, your body needs, right? As an individual, not based on, some somebody's numbers, but for you, how much sleep do you need? That's one. And the second is, how good is the quality of that sleep? So is that really you, uh, you're charging your battery, you plug it in, but really does it get charged or not in, in mm -hmm. the, however long it takes? And uh, so that quality of sleep also is a huge big factor. So you have to look at both of them and in order to make the best of them the more you understand about how the function of sleep happens what's happening while you're sleeping why is sleep important uh, what does it do for you why does it do that for you uh, the more you learn about it the better you can you know improve upon it in a basic sense to be sleepy at a certain time, there are two mechanisms in play that we understand at this time. One mechanism is that of a stopwatch. The, the watch turns on uh, the moment you wake up for the day, and it's counting how long you've been awake. So it's awake time, stopwatch. The longer you've been awake, the sleepier and more tired you are going to get, and you will get the best sleep after so after the longest amount of wakefulness if you generally speaking most people after 14 15 16 hours of wakefulness need to to sleep the second mechanism is what you 
called the circadian rhythm, the day and night rhythm. And so that is a, a built-in clock in the brain, not a stopwatch, a clock that, that regulates the timing and not just the timing, a whole lot of different mechanisms are all intricately built around that clock. But that clock is set each day to slight variations and it, it's modifiable just like our regular watches and clocks are. So that clock, when it tells the body it's nighttime, combined with the stopwatch telling the body you've been awake this long, long enough, those two mechanisms coming into play together, synchronizing, give us the best duration and quality of sleep. A whole lot of factors surround this. So this is a very basic, in a very basic sense, the longer you stay awake, the better you're going to sleep. Combined with the when the body says it's nighttime and you've been awake long enough, that combination works the best. If you desynchronize them, it doesn't work very well. Okay, how can you desynchronize them? Say you take a flight from here to Europe, uh, from Wisconsin, it's uh, say you go to England or Germany, seven, six, seven hours ahead from here in California, nine, 10 hours ahead. So you stay up in the plane, you, you got on the plane, it was daytime for you, you stayed up on the plane, you watched movies, you arrived there, it's gonna be nighttime pretty soon. You've been up 18 hours, maybe 19 hours, you want to sleep. But your circadian rhythm is not telling you that because your circadian rhythm may be in that phase that says it's still daytime. So you may go to sleep, but you'll wake up within a couple of hours. When you're supposed to wake up over there, you've, you've desynchronized it. Uh, so you're supposed to wake up, you're, at that time you're gonna get really tired and sleepy. So if both mechanisms are in sync, they work the best. If they're not in sync, things don't work very well. So, and there's so many other factors. So I'll let you think about it and ask me something else if you like. I was just wondering why the two clocks work that way. You know, I was thinking like I said, because we were hunter gatherers and we would move around, but, we, but like the, the daytime might change a little bit. So you want some way to like, optimize for that change i was just kind of curious i was just wondering um i would when i hear about some biological function i was wondering like why it exists i don't i don't know are there theories for why there's two clocks in this way so two points i can make here one is that recently there some people did research on uh tribes in the amazon and somewhere else that i can't recall uh, tribes that still live their primitive hunter-gatherer lifestyle and that are not affected by present-day technology. They still live like they lived for thousands of years. Okay, Very small numbers of people remaining. I think one in Africa somewhere and one in the Amazon region. And they found out that these people go to sleep uh, not early, uh, not at sunset. They stay up um, they sit around a fire, they, whatever, they talk, uh, they go to bed and then they wake up 
very, very early before sunrise when it's still dark. They go hunt, they gather, um, they do whatever they do, and then they sleep again during the day. Hmm. Okay, so they split their sleep cycle in two. So the uh, the idea that these people, the researchers came up with was, oh, this is how humans are designed to function at their best. They should split their sleep cycle in two. They can sleep four hours at night and four hours during the day, and that's what the body needs. I'm not sure that is really correct, but this was an observational kind of research. The second uh, thing about the... Uh, why this works, like you said, the hunter-gatherer lifestyle, is that we know the time to wake up as, as our bodies start waking up naturally, getting ready for the day. There are multiple changes that happen in the body prior to waking up that make prime it to get ready, get up, have the best energy, be able to function at your best, go go out, go hunt, catch the animal, bring the food. Now you would say that used to be in the primitive society is primarily a function of men. So how about the women in society? And I don't know the answer to that. But th how the body is designed as we observe it, as it functions is you uh, in the hour or two before you normally naturally wake up your body starts getting ready for the day you wake up uh you like bright light bright light wakes you up your blood sugar starts rising you start getting hungry your your muscles work better you are ready to go out and use your energy and do the job that you were supposed to do. So that we know that this waking up, th there's a there's a system in the body that primes us to function best in the morning. Okay, that way. Now, a lot of people will say, well, I don't function very well in the morning. I function the best in the afternoon. So then there comes that individual variation. And, and then you can ask the question, oh, why does some people do some people function better this way or that way, and there may be answers to those. But in terms of the biology of waking up in the morning, there is that case. So that is what people think that that came from the, the hunter-gatherer uh, lifestyle very early. So the follow-up question to that would be, well, why hasn't that changed itself? I mean, I just, you know, as we were talking, I told you, I saw these, these uh, skeletal remains of uh, humans that were 800,000 years old in, in North Africa, yeah, North, no, so East, East Africa. So um, if that's, if this has been going on for 800,000 years, you know, humans have gone through so many phases of evolution in these 800,000 years. Why hasn't this system changed? Uh, part of the different, the, I think my comment on that would be that our lifestyle and way of doing things has primarily changed in only in the last couple hundred years. And particularly in the last 100 years with the, with the advent of artificial light. Before that, 
we, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, we lived a kind of a very similar lifestyle. So that hasn't changed. So what happens in the next two, 200, 500 years may change the, that biology. What does the artificial, it just elongates the day? Like what does the artificial light do? Artificial light does a lot of things. Uh, one, yes, it prolongs the day. It, two, the effect of light interferes with this mechanism of the rhythm of day and night, the body's recognition of when it's nighttime and time to sleep and when it's dark, uh, when it's so dark or bright light that those are two major ways the body's clock adjusts itself. So now we've modified how the clock is going to function. It's not natural daylight or hmm. it, it's artificial light. The second part of this is more intricate, which is the different wavelengths of light. So we started out using lights that used burning oils, for example, for, for lamps and candles. And now then we use the, the tungsten lamp, the, the light bulb um, that for, for over a hundred years, and now we've moved on to using these LED electronic lights. And also in this time, we also used fluorescent lights and they all produce different wavelengths of light. So warmer colors, more red, more blue, more green, all of that has effects on our biology. So that is a very active field of research on how different wavelengths of light affect us and how do they affect us? They affect how different mechanisms in our bodies are primed to work at their best. So re researchers have found that certain wavelengths of light uh, in in uh, in mammals, not uh, not humans, in other animals, uh, they have found um, certain phases of their life, uh, certain hormones are enhanced, and they. Uh, are activated by exposure to certain wavelengths of light. So they then they have found that certain wavelengths of light activate the uh, system of stress hormones. Uh, certain wavelengths of light uh, help them go to sleep better or wake up earlier. So that is uh, that is something uh, that that is an active field of research, and people have tried in us humans as a result of that research people have tried to apply that in different ways we only see the very basics of it like you know you avoid blue light when you're looking at the computer and you you wear a blue blocker kind of eyeglasses or these days now uh, computer screens and phone screens block out certain kinds of light uh, at night so we've adapted some things but there's a whole lot more to it that we don't really quite understand yet very well. That makes sense. Um, well, go, going back to the, one of the things we were previously talking about, uh, one of the, our listeners, uh, knowing that this call was coming up, asked me a question that I'm going to ask you, which I like to do. So if people listen in, if you have questions, send them to me because you never know who I'm going to talk to. And this is just like, if you ever have someone who knows about sleep, um, uh, they've been waiting since Javon was on, actually. So, that's good. <laughs> so uh, I, I hope okay. they're still out there, not mad at me. So uh, one of them asked, sometimes I wake up after a solid night's sleep feeling tired still. What What's happening there? 
And uh, what what could they have done to not have that happen? Because I imagine if you have a solid night of sleep, it's kind of like a defeated way to start the day. But yeah, how what, what would you do there? So many, many questions need to be answered about that solid night of sleep. Uh, and those have to do with the timing of it. Those have to do with what you eat or drink prior to going to sleep. Those have to do with the environment that you sleep in. They have to do with your breathing. If you're breathing well enough, um, you're getting enough oxygen while you're sleeping. Uh, it uh, There is an effect of body movements on your sleep uh, that you may not be aware of. Uh, and of all the things, uh, there is something called sleep state misperception that a person sleeps for a solid night and wakes up feeling they got no sleep at all. And that is related to how busy their mind tends to be uh, during the night. So there are many, many, many different possible reasons for somebody thinking that they sleep for a solid night, yet they wake up tired. So and that actually that the answer to that question is a very familiar one in my office in, in patients that i who i see this is the kind of conversation we have we go through an entire day's um routine of their life uh, what happens so what time you wake up what breakfast you have how much caffeine you have caffeine nicotine alcohol cannabis whatever medicines um, do you have other health problems? Do you snore? Do you breathe okay? Do you get up at night? Um, are are your covers off when you uh, wake up and so on? So there's a whole lot of detail that is needed to answer that question, but it's a very common question. Mm -hmm. Are there common things? I know everyone to some extent is like fairly unique, uh, but at the same time, we're not that unique, but are there are there common things that you suggest people stay away from? Or, you know, I imagine like caffeine before bed would be an obvious one to get rid of. But uh, what are some things that they should be eating or not eating? You know, that type of thing. So, yeah, yeah uh, typically. If you have a heavy meal. Before going to bed, you may have heartburn, so that can be a problem if you have a light snack starchy snack that maintains your blood sugar levels better during the night so that's better if you go to bed and it's warm and cozy you fall asleep better if your environment is cool and it allows your body to cool down and lose heat during the night you sleep better um, so there are general general basic things uh, if you have any I have patients who tell me they have to have a cigarette just before they go to bed, okay? And so they they come in because they can't go to sleep. And we have this you know basic discussion about their routine and they say, oh yeah, you know, I, I smoke a cigarette before I go to bed, they could, I, I have this habit. And I say, nicotine is a very strong brain stimulant. Now, how can your mind switch off when you are uh, when you have a certain amount of nicotine circulating in your bloodstream. 
So there are sometimes very common sense things that you just need to talk to somebody about this before you realize, oh, this is what I'm doing wrong. Similarly, uh, a lot of people don't recognize this and with the holidays coming up when um, alcohol consumption dramatically increases uh, and longer nights and winter time. So uh, doctors will often ask you about alcohol, like they'll ask you about smoking. Uh, what oftentimes people don't pay attention to is the type of alcohol, right? So, uh, for example, uh, if you drink wine, it also depends on the type of wine. If you have white wine, which is higher in sugar content than red wine, do you have red wine that is sweet or not sweet? So the amount of sugar in the in the alcoholic drink makes a lot of difference. It, and then there's alcohol itself. On the flip side, people who drink hard liquor, uh, it's smaller amounts, but it's higher amount of alcohol, it's less sugar, but the alcohol amount is more, so that has a different effect on people. So all of those factor into all of this. And um, so I, 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 talk, uh, I think a lot about alcohol because people really don't uh, recognize the alcohol issue uh, being a major one. And sometimes people think it helps them go to sleep, uh, which it, it can and does. The problem is, um, it I call it bipolar. It's uh, it has a it has two different kinds of effect depending on how much of alcohol is in your bloodstream. So, if you're drinking, if if a small amount of alcohol is in your bloodstream, it's a stimulant. It helps you feel better. You're happier. You're more relaxed. And as you keep drinking, the amount of alcohol gradually increases, and then it becomes a depressant. Depressant in medical terms means it starts shutting off your brain. So it makes you tired. It makes you sleepy. You you have a few drinks. Now you're sleepy. You're going to go to sleep. When you go to sleep, obviously, you're not drinking anymore. Now your liver is rapidly breaking the alcohol down. The blood level starts dropping. So as it drops, it again becomes a stimulant and it starts waking you up. Now, whether you recognize it or not, but you may be waking up so much that by the morning you think, oh, I, I had a few drinks, I had I slept for a solid night and I woke up feeling awful. Not just the hangover, it's just that you were constantly waking up during the night because of the low, as, as the alcohol level dropped and that affected your sleep. So it could be many different things. And then when the alcohol is acting as a depressant and making you sleepy, it also affects people in for their breathing problems because 10 to 15% of the population in general has breathing problems in sleep. So it's quite common. So you, you, you have a few drinks, you fall asleep, your people around you notice that you snore a lot when you uh, have a few drinks. Well, what that truly means is you have trouble breathing, your oxygen level is repeatedly dropping, you're repeatedly waking up to breathe and very often you don't know that your sleep is being interrupted by this. You wake up in the morning, you say something is wrong, I don't feel good. So very, the, the problem with our human perception of what happens during the night is very often it's faulty and we don't 
remember or recognize what happens to us, but in the morning we say the result is really bad. So that's, I mean, that's why it's it's hard to say for that, you know, one line question of I wake up after a solid night's sleep, why don't I feel good? Could be mm -hmm. so many different factors to it. That makes sense. The I was reading a study a, a while ago that they were putting like a radar detector type thing in the and people who are older in their rooms and they were they were showing that uh older people were waking up at at night for a little bit and then going back to bed but they weren't remembering it because it was a short amount of time and those people had a, a statistically higher chance they had a higher rate of alzheimer's and now there's some new stuff coming out saying that sleep is one of the uh like a good like blocker for alzheimer's or something like that but um why <clears throat> so like me my, me myself like, every now and again I will like just wake up at like three in the morning and I'm like, and I've seen so many horror movies that so I'm like, Oh God, is there mind being haunted? But uh, then I just go back to bed. But like my first thought is like, if this is a horror movie, like something's going to attack me in the next 10 seconds. <laughs> and I just like, I leave one eye open and then I just go back to bed. But like, but my wife wakes up at, I know so many people who like just wake up like two or three for like 10 minutes and like, Oh, that's weird. And they go back to bed. What? Um, and they go to like, for me, I'll just like, like I go to bed at 10 every night. Like I'm very boring. I don't drink. I don't do any, like, I'm a very boring person. So, like, why would someone like me, I guess, like, why why, why do people in general, I'll keep it general, because um, I don't want free advice, but um, why do, <laughs> why are people waking up at, like, two to three in the morning, routinely? Like, let's say, like, two or three times a week. Yeah. Why is that happening? So, one, uh, we all wake up five to six times an hour. Hmm. Okay. Every night, everybody that's so when we study somebody in a sleep lab, if we see that they're waking up five or six times an hour, we say it's normal. Hmm. Okay. So what does that waking up mean? What that waking up means is that your brain activity matches that of an awake person during that time. And it's a very brief period of time that you you you're asleep and then you wake up and you you go back into sleep so but it's considered biologically it's an awakening even if it's brief so that happens to everybody many times an hour two if the awakening is uh, only a few seconds typically eight seconds or less you have no recollection of being awake so if you have a breathing problem or whatever, or you're uncomfortable or your back hurts or your shoulder hurts, you toss and turn and move, move during the night, you may be doing it many times, but you have no recollection that you do this because you just briefly wake up, you know, turn over and go back to sleep. So you don't remember that it happened. And uh, thirdly, the question is, well, why does a an otherwise normal person just wake up four or five hours uh, into the night then again there could be many factors so it could be a dream that woke them up it could be a normal physiological function that abruptly woke them up it could be something in their environment that woke them up it could be that they were hot or cold or uh, uh, or there was noise or light or movement or something that uh, um, interrupted their sleep so it could be a perfectly normal physiological function that wakes a person up as long as it happens, you know, once a week or twice a week, it's not something that's constantly affecting them. 
So we, for most what we call disorders of sleep, you know, things that break down, they are usually uh, measured in how long and how frequently the problem affects the person. So if you say I can't sleep uh, two times a night for the last uh, six months, you would still not qualify as having insomnia, okay? Because the requirement is it has to be at least three times a night for, uh, uh, three nights a week, excuse me, three nights a week uh, for at least three months that you've had trouble sleeping during the night, then I'm gonna call it chronic insomnia. So to, to differentiate what happens normally to people and what doesn't, what is really not normal that affects their health, there are these artificial uh, kind of criteria to say, this is really wrong and this is still within the normal range. So, uh, so that's, that's part of the human makeup and the, the variability of how the human body works and how the mind works. So yeah, a lot of people do wake up. Uh, I sometimes wake up during the night and turn over, go back to sleep. And some nights I'll abruptly wake up like this morning. Um, I typically sleep uh, seven or eight hours. Uh, and uh, this morning um, I went to bed last night late and I woke up in less than six hours. And I'm like, why am I already awake? Okay. Uh, but some some nights are like that. and. I tell I tell everybody, you know, if this is something once in a while and it's weird, so whatever happened, and I couldn't go back to sleep. So you shrug your shoulders and so be it. So if I'm if I feel I'm ready to get out of bed, I didn't get out of bed. I wasn't didn't feel ready to get out of bed. But if you feel you're ready to get out of bed, get out of bed. It's okay. Going back to the, I have a question related to the clocks. So there's like this military way of falling asleep where they put their feet above their head and apparently like if they just do it for like 10 to 20 minutes like it's really good does that reset the awake clock so they feel alive again so like have you heard of this concept this like way of like taking naps like power naps um and my my guess would be is like maybe it like resets that clock that lets you know how long you've been awake so then you feel more rested um so i'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on power naps and what what mechanisms do you think are, are at work to make them so effective so the, uh, the 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 research is uh, you can um, you, you can take naps and still remain healthy, active, and productive for short periods of time. Short periods meaning a few weeks, maybe a few months. So if you're in a in a battle zone, you can't really afford to sleep for six, seven, or eight hours because you might get killed, right? So you take turns and you take a 20 minute nap and you refresh yourself and you go on for another three, four hours and you take a 20, 30 minute nap and you take turns and that you can, you know, practically you can do. And so research has found that if you did that, you take these short power naps that you could live that life like that for a short time, not as a lifestyle. Why? because the body gets to perform some of its functions enough that it can sustain itself for these few months. The body, the body is very forgiving in that. We, we do all kinds of weird things to ourselves. We eat weird stuff, we do weird things. And yet, you know, it seems like the, the body, it's 
the body's not designed to do, do those things, but it still lets us do those things and live on and not really terribly affect our health in, in, in bad ways. But the requirement is that this is not forever. This is not how you live your life. Similarly, uh, it's kind of deviating from your question, but similarly goes night shift work. So the body is not designed to stay up all night when it's dark. And some people just have to work night. Um, and uh, the, the idea is, the science is that if you work night shift for longer than a year, or up to a year, the body may forgive that. But longer than a year, you're really shortening your lifespan. I, I see people who've been working night shift for 15, 18, 20 years, and I tell them, you're way past that one year limit here into 10, 15, or 20 years. And they say, I'm going to have to keep doing this, that, this until I retire, because this is all that can fit into my lifestyle or my needs. And I can't do anything else. So then we make our own independent decisions on this is what I want to do or can do, or this is what my circumstances are. So going back to what works best, do these power naps work? So for an average person on a daily basis, if you take a 20 minute nap in your day, that is perfectly fine and good. And if you took this nap, the requirement is it's 20 or 30 minutes or less, and it's in the middle or later part of your day, then if you took that nap, you'll, you're likely to wake up refreshed for the following five, six, seven hours before you go to bed and will not reset that hmm. timer we talked about. So to reset that timer that turned on the moment you woke up in the morning, what's required is you going into deep sleep. And if you only take this nap for 15 or 20 minutes, you don't go into deep sleep. It's very light sleep. Hmm. And what that light sleep does is it eliminates the chemical that accumulates in the brain with fatigue, with activity, with brain activity. That same chemical is eliminated or fought off actually by caffeine. But caffeine has other effects. So the healthier thing to do instead of drinking an afternoon cup of coffee to stay awake and do your work is really to take a 15, 20 minute nap and go on and you'll, you'll be much more efficient and able to do your work better. Then again, we make our own independent decisions on what works best for you or me in a particular circumstance, uh, but the body works better there. So a, a nap a day, one one short nap in the afternoon for a person, on, a, an average person with a regular lifestyle who works during the day, sleeps at night, seven, eight hours at night. Yes, that works. Uh, a nap that's longer, an hour, hour and a half. What's going to happen is you'll go into deep sleep. That timer will reset itself. You'll wake up feeling tired, groggy, you'll have trouble going to sleep that night. If you do go to sleep, your sleep will not be of that good quality. So that's because that timer effect was 
was desynced from desynchronized from the system and now you're only depending on your circadian rhythm to make you sleep during the night which takes away from the from the intensity of that sleep the depth of that sleep so that changes that makes sense the um it reminds me uh of a question i wanted to ask you about starchy food you mentioned um if you take like starchy food before sleep it's better than doing other things um i heard that it's good not to eat up to like three hours before you go to bed is there is there an optimization benefit in in eating a starch or anything before going to bed or is it generally something you should skip and then like not eat before bed if that makes sense like yeah, you like I mean, supercharge your sleep with a substance <laughs> like a starchy, you know, potato or something. Yeah, yeah. The um, is culturally, a lot of people what they do is they have dinner around sunset. Okay, the sunset five thirty six, end of their day, five thirty six six thirty, and they go to bed at ten, so three four hours later. Yeah, so if you were awake for three, four hours, if just before you go to bed, you may feel like you need something additional uh, to fill up your stomach. So the idea of having a starchy snack is that one starch breaks down slowly and it maintains your blood sugar level during the night. The second is it fills up your stomach and that heaviness on your stomach also adds to the sleepiness effect so making you go to sleep better it's just like the coziness effect of the warmth of uh, of the bed or the covers when you go to sleep that help makes it easier to go to sleep the question you're asking is if you eat a meal just before bedtime or just like a that, snack yeah a snack is harmless and it'll help you go to sleep as long as it, it's not high in sugar and it's not high in fat. Okay. So it could be a piece of bread. It could be a potato. It could be a, a corn on the cob. It could be cornbread. Uh, you know, it could be cereal, something like that. If it has fiber in it, that's even better. If, if it's low in sugar, that's great. If it's low in fat, that's great. So that you can do, and that'll help you go to sleep better. And it's not going to mess with your blood sugar levels because then the opposite of that is if you had a larger meal at bedtime, now your body has no way to utilize the instantly available sugar. So it, its immediate answer to that is store it as fat. So people, so that is not a good idea. And then there are, there are, cultures around the world who um, they people just have dinners late in the evening. Uh, so um, they go to bed at say later, maybe 11 ish, 1130 midnight, and they have their dinner, they start dinner at nine, 930, 10 o'clock sometimes, a lot of people in different parts of the world. So that is not considered to be a good idea. Because we, you know, we we follow along the how different diseases are evolving in those societies and there tends to be a higher percentage of people with diabetes and obesity and so on so uh, that's not considered a healthy way to do things so do you have like a hot potato on the side of your bed before you go to go to sleep or is this like hot what do you what do you do what, what, what do i do um yeah yeah i i so 
I, I'm not a good example for that, <laughs> uh, that, that thing. Uh, it, I, and that's related to my current lifestyle, which involves mm. being in multiple time zones and mm. at different times when I have meetings with people in different parts of the world. And uh, so that's, uh, that's a short term thing. So, but in the long term, uh, yeah, I, I will often have a little snack, uh, uh, maybe a small cookie or a, or a half a banana, uh, or a, a small amount of leftover food from the dinner. Okay. A, a couple bites, but if I have more then I know it affects me badly. Okay. So when do I have more? I have more again part of the, the lifestyle or circumstances that can affect you in the short term is when I eat dinner late, right? So I'm working 12 hours and I get home really late and it's close to my bedtime and I'm hungry. So I eat a big meal. And then soon after that, I want to go to sleep. That's not a good idea. And that, that I, I recognize personally that causes weight gain and, and it has. And so that's a personal issue of how you balance life out so it's it um and and that is true of everyone so life being life and things we do and phases of life that we live through and uh things we decide to do knowingly in life sometimes working harder uh longer hours uh not eating at regular hours regular times or not choosing the right kind of food to eat uh in in parts of our life, all of those things happen. All of those things happen to pretty much everyone. The difference is if you recognize what's wrong, then you can fix it. If it becomes a permanent long-term lifestyle for you, then it's a problem. And that's what I try to avoid. That makes sense. The, another uh, topic I wanted to ask you about is, um, so sometimes people, when they're going to bed, they can't shut their brain off. And usually, or related to this, there are many people that suffer from anxiety that, you know, also, you know, can't shut their brain off. Uh, what are the things that they can do to make it easier for them to go to bed? Because like, it's like a negative cycle. If they're not getting sleep, then they wake up and it's worse, 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 especially if you're suffering from a mental illness, like it's not probably the best way to go about things. So how can people who struggle shutting their brain off before or when they're trying to go to bed, what can they do about it? So one, one part of it, we already talked about in, in quite a bit of detail, not taking long naps and not having all those foods and uh, you know dietary things that affect us. But you go to bed for one reason or another, your mind just gets going and it's hard to go to sleep. So if that's a routine, like I said, that's not just one off, but this happens every night. If that's the case, then you need to learn techniques that help you switch off your mind. Okay. Uh, as I say, it's, it's important to logically understand the process of going to sleep. What is it? What does it mean to go to sleep, right? So to go to sleep, if you break it down, is a process where the mind switches attention completely, switches attention from your life, your feelings, your emotions, your comfort, your discomfort, and completely focuses on the maintenance work that needs to happen on a daily basis 
to keep you healthy. That maintenance work is for the brain and for the rest of the body. The first requirement is switching off that from paying attention to everything to just focusing on that maintenance work. That switch from one to the other is like a light switch, right? Turn it on and off. So when people have trouble switching, switching that off so that their mind can completely focus on its maintenance work, the question is what prevents them, their mind from that process? If it's not something that's environmental, it's not something that they have control over, it's not something that's related to their habits or diet or uh, routine, and it's just purely simply that, hey, over time, I have become that way. I realize uh, I, I've had situations like this. I've had traumatic situations, emotional situations, whatever it is. My mind is just busy. If that's the case, then you learn these techniques that focus your mind on, on what we understand are things that the mind is designed to focus on as a priority over everything. What are those things? What's most important to you emotionally? What makes you happy and comfortable emotionally? If you focus on the physical act of your breathing, if you focus on how different physical parts of your body feel in that moment. Simply noticing how parts of the body feel. So there's a process that you can learn to go through. I teach that regularly to my patients um, on group visits I do, I do on Zoom. So that's a, a process and you can, it's not rocket science, but it is some, it, these are techniques that you need an instructor to work with. And you learn these with repetition. You can't just go to a class or, uh, you know, take cues from what I'm telling you and just say, okay, I'm going to do this. It is a process to do this. But the concept is that as you go through a series of these techniques, these are based on the science of how the mind is designed to prioritize certain things. Of all the worries, all the thoughts, all the things that go through their, your mind that keep it busy, if you, as you go through these techniques, the, the mind is designed in such a way that these are most important to it. So once you learn to do these properly, it's like automatically your mind focuses on these and completely relaxes and stops thinking about the rest of whatever is happening. The weather's changing, the, it's going to be cold, hot, the words whatever problems are there, what needs to be solved, he said, she said, bills to pay, you know, what assignments for the next day, whatever it is, have all of those things go in the background, including aches and pains, which very often affect people at, at night and, and their sleep. So all those things go in the background and what comes to the foreground is, okay, this is what I live my life for, what's most important. If I think of X, Y, Z, it makes me feel instantly comfortable and safe. We call that a happy place. And I pay attention to how I breathe and different parts of my body. And all of a sudden, the mind only focuses on those things and everything else in the background.
So that is a process of training yourself to switch off your mind. And that is the healthiest way of dealing with it as compared to a chemical that forcefully shuts off your mind because they have short and long-term effects. Makes sense. Um, I could totally see you uh, being the voiceover for some of those apps, you know? Uh, I have one and I, I've been trying to do it more, like the meditation apps, the mindful apps. Yeah. Um, so I can see your voice, you have a very calming voice. <laughs> but I don't know if, that, if that's something you guys are gonna build, but uh, I'd love to see it. So we have uh, we have an app. It's like a demo app oh. on the App Store. If you want to look at it um, under the office name Sehatu, and uh, you you can download it. There's several meditations on it. There's other recordings on it. There's other other some functionality is not active, but the recordings in the media are active. So it's a yeah. There's I, actually I I have some meditations on some of these meditation apps that are out there and uh yeah that's, that's part of what we do makes sense so, that, so, so what's the what's the future of your work like how, where where do you see sahatu and uh, i don't know i can guess your age but i've been eventually you're gonna retire so like what, what, do you, what do you want to do for the remainder of your working career yeah so the, so the human lifespan is very short, right? Mm -hmm. So once you realize that something is really important to you and you feel like you have the knowledge, the skills, the the ability to give people something, then your job is to make do everything to transfer it to people, to benefit people. So, and the sleep problems tend to be global and increasing and large populations being affected by them. So we are actively working uh, internationally uh, in different countries, um, establishing uh, mechanisms so that we can uh, help people deal with their sleep problems better and be healthier. It's not just a in the way I look at it, uh, a world where people sleep better is a peaceful world. People feel better, feel happier, are more productive, they're more focused, they're not angry, they're not depressed, um, they don't want to fight, they want to work. And uh, that that can have a tremendous impact. So I'm here today, I'll be gone tomorrow, not just, you know, retire, that's, that's human, it's a human uh, limitation. We're in, the, it's not, it's beyond individuals. It's the concept of if we have come at that point in science and in our knowledge that we understand what sleep is and how it works and how important it is, how it connects with every aspect of our lives and health problems, particularly chronic health problems, these you know, diabetes, aches and pains and heart disease and cancer and everything. So if that's the case, then we do all we can, and we are doing all we can to have a global impact on them, not, not just here in the States, but anywhere that we can find friends and connections and resources to help. So, so we are, so that's, that's, so you heard me say, you know, I, I'm 
have meeting with people, people in different time zones. I have a meeting in China and then I have a meeting in the Middle East and I have a meeting somewhere else. And so arranging those meetings in different time zones, that's what's affecting my sleep and my routine and my eating habits at the present time. But this is something that I took upon myself in this part of my life that I better do this because life is short and do what you can to have a positive impact on society. So um, this is kind of like a weird line to go down. So you tell me if like this is like too much, but um, how much of what you do now, because you know, I know you're a dad and you know, if we had your son, so people try and guess who his, his son is. I feel like it really shouldn't be that hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, other than the, the company name, I mean, like, you, you know, but anyways, you know, everyone guess. Um, is there a component of what you do that's just setting an example for, for um, I'm going to not say his name. Everyone has to guess who it is. But uh, is there a component of working so hard for the future you want to see setting a good example for your sons? Or does that, like, how does that come? You know, I, 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 it's an observation. Okay. So not a plan from my part. Mm. So I don't do anything intentionally to have an impact on my kids. The observation is how parents live their life every day is what their kids do and learn. I can I can have a hundred talks with my kids. They're not going to do what I tell them. But if I live my life a certain way, they're going to follow in my path. And they have, and they've, they're very headstrong. Uh, they know what they want, what's important to them. Um, and so they, they've, chosen to do what what they're doing uh, and uh they're 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 very hard working they're very conscientious and uh, it's not because i have taught them i mean obviously it's not one parent uh, my wife has a strong influence on them too so but my observation is that this is how you can't tell your kids to be a certain way you live your life you take care of your kids, they will follow in your footsteps if you're a good person, hopefully. That makes sense. I don't have kids, so I, but I asked lots of questions about kids because I think uh, I think it's neat. And we're all a product of uh, people wanting kids. You know, if people didn't uh, want to have kids, like we wouldn't exist unless we're uh, somehow clones. Yeah, so, so sometimes people have kids without wanting them. <laughs> yeah, that's very unfortunate for the kids. There's a, there's a, I'm just like, wow, I, this is like a dark turn. But like there's a there's a town nearby where there's a woman who had like 13 kids. But uh, she kept – she. I'll say this quickly. We can move on. But she kept killing them in different ways. And it was like really sad. And it's like that. why did you keep having them? Like she knew that she was doing things that she knew would have kids. I don't know. It's really weird. It's sad. Because like the kids didn't do anything. They're just alive. It's, you know, it's unfortunate that people take out their problems on, uh, you know, like go – Go fight someone who can fight back, but I guess it's the idea that they can't fight back. But that's interesting that uh, you know you don't go the lecture route, especially given like you've probably had so many lectures in your life you know, with your degree. You're like, you know what, this uh, doesn't work. <laughs> just just uh, yeah. lead by example. Le le yeah, lectures don't work. Um, yeah, that's that's my experience. Now we have this kind of a, a discussion often in our family, especially between me and my wife, on you know what what leads to you know people having kids because us our 
our friends who we've known for many years, our family, extended family, you know, people around our age group have kids, kids who are growing up, kids who are doing different things. So we often, often have this discussion on what leads to kids doing certain things in life. Usually, you know, I, I know a lot of very goal-oriented, very smart, very, uh, very productive uh, uh, kids who are, who are doing great things. And always the question is, well, why is the, this child turning out to be like this? How come they're doing this? And uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's often you, you, it's all retrospective. You look back and say, okay, what, what, what who are their parents? What is their genetics? How did they, uh, you know, how was the upbringing uh, and so on. But for somebody who is looking to have kids or with the potential of having kids in the future, uh, the thing to look at is you make first, think that's really important is find your happiness. Finding your happiness means prioritizing yourself and, and recognizing yourself as a good person. Okay. That is the prime requirement before you can give love to any other person. Now you, when you are ready, when you have, when you are a couple and you are in love with somebody and you are going to have kids, the, then the next thing is to provide them with a loving, comforting environment and you take care of the kids. And the thing subsequent to that is you live a life that you want your kids to live. They will follow in your footsteps. They will do what makes them happy. But happiness being having a feeling of being fulfilled, being complete, having confidence in yourself. Those are more important qualities than, to me, than somebody who we can say is going to make a lot of money. The money comes after, okay? The person's quality of life matters. Who they are, how they live their life, what they feel their life is worth, how they're doing, how they feel on a daily basis. So being miserable is not worth having all the money in the world or, you know, people say you're successful, but you're miserable every day. I don't see that as being worthwhile. So I don't want my kids to be that way either. That makes sense. There's a book by Marcus Aurelius called The Meditations. And he talks in it about how uh, he, like, he reminds himself that like when people compliment you or whatever, it's like, it doesn't matter. Like we're all gonna die soon anyway. It's like so, just I do totally what you agree. Want to do anyway, yeah. Just do I, I totally, do. I totally agree with that. Yeah. So, so somebody said, "Yeah, it's encouraging. Yeah, you're a good person. Your kids are good. Yeah, great. Thank you." But it's like, what? Yeah, I, my significance in the universe is very little. I'm here today. I won't be here tomorrow. Will probably make no difference to the universe. Uh, I'm one moving part that was supposed to be you know, to exist and then change forms and be something else. Okay, so so be it. I will do my part in what I'm designed to do. So be positive, be productive, be happy. Makes sense. Very, you... very short life, goes very quickly. Yeah. Are you a fan of Bob Marley, musician? 
Uh, am I a fan of them? Not necessarily, but yeah, I, I you're just, saying some I, of his I, lyrics. That's all. You're just <laughs> you're just saying some of his lyrics. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there are. I call these universal truths. So a lot mm -hmm. of people recognize these things and say, I, "So I'm not the first one to say these things." There's a lot of people say the same thing over and over, and they yeah, have for for, for for thousands of years for written history and for famous people or not famous people and books and musicians. People have said the same things many times. It's just, you know, as you get older and more experienced and live your life, I think you come tend to come to the same kind of conclusions of what life is and why we do what we do. It makes sense. Yeah, I would just I would just say it because uh, uh, I like Bob Marmalade and I always kind of I'm always wondering what people are listening to. Um, do you have a do you have like a track that you listen to while you're working or or are you? A lover of music. Yeah, Some I, people do not care about music at all. I I love music. Uh, I love music of a certain kind. Mostly, it's um, it is instrumental, uh, and, or uh, I mean, it could be, um, uh, uh, and and a lot of it is uh, the the vocals are Sufi vocals. So that then again, they're more philosophical. Um, so more more Eastern, but could be Western too. Uh, now, loving music does not necessarily mean that I listen to music all the time. So there is music in the background when I'm in the office. There's music in the background. It's usually jazz, but uh, it's so it's it's part of my life. But it's not consciously like if you ask me lyrics to any song, I probably wouldn't be able to give you any. That makes sense. The, is there a is there a band that you like in particular that has the instrumentals that you like? Um, uh, they're, they're all, uh, no, there's, there's, there's several, uh, I mean, I originally being from Pakistan, I, uh, my native language is Urdu. So um, there are some uh, musicians and some poets uh, that I like listening to when I am in that mood. Um, these days, I'm working, you know, long hours, so it's just work, work, work. Unfortunately, so not unfortunately, out of choice. But uh, uh, but when I do get the chance to enjoy the music, that's the kind of music I enjoy. Yeah, I don't know any Pakistan music, so I mean, like, literally, give me give me a name so I can look it up after this call. <laughs> yeah, so there is a uh, woman uh, by the name of Abida A B I D A Abida. Mm -hmm. Perveen, P-A-R-V-E-E-N. And she recently had a fantastic concert here in San Francisco, uh, recently, a, a couple of years ago. Uh, she's a fabulous Sufi singer, uh, very, uh, yeah, she, yeah, if you, if you Google Sufi music and Abida Perveen, you'll, you'll find lots of her music. And, uh, it's it's uh, so I I really like her music, uh, and uh, I on the spot I don't think I could name anybody else, but there are uh, she she's one of the best. Sweet, I'll check it out. I've never heard of Sufi music before, so I'm going to check oh, out yeah. a whole new genre. That's going to be awesome. I'm oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There you, you'll find lots of Western Sufi music too. So uh, so I mean. The, you can ask the really the question to ask is what does that the word Sufi mean and so that opens up a whole new discussion. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, I'm gonna Google it after the fact because I know we're we're going long and I want to 
wrap it up with the last two questions so I don't eat up your whole day. Yeah, um, what are uh, some books that you're currently reading when you have a chance to read? Um, oh, my my favorite book of all time is The Alchemist. Have you heard of The Alchemist? Paulo Coelho? It's, yeah, it's the, there's a it's story. It's not a big book. It's a really small book. Yeah, I've read it I've multiple read it. times. I like this story it's of just, happiness. It, it just struck that hard. I, I think a lot of people like it and it's been translated into many languages. A very, it, it's not, I mean, it's not a complicated novel. It's, uh, and it's not very big. And I think he wrote it in the early part of his career. So it's, it's been many years. Uh, he, he's written many books after that, but that tends to be the the concept of that book and what happens to the the main character in that book that tends to be my favorite story yeah, the i ultimate. like the yeah i like the one where um i think it's like a parable within the story or it is the story where like there's a a person who go is he sends his son to like an like a really smart guy to learn how to be happy or like be fulfilled and then like he gives like the kid i won't spoil this for anyone but like he gives the kid a task and it's like a parable throughout the day because like he can't like keep water in a cup and a spoon while doing all these other things. So I, I like, the, I really like the parables in there. Um, yeah. So, so, uh, you know, these are all, all based on, on historical old, old classic folk stories from different cultures. So these are adapted from those, you know, basically wise man tales. So um, there's, there's a lot of those kinds of uh, stories out there. Yeah. I think parables are fun. Like even the, like the Hansel and Gretel type ones. Cause there's, yeah. you know, it's like, uh, they, they have a lot of really interesting lessons in them. If you, if you like just sit and listen to them. Cause, um, I mean like the, with the meditations by Marcus Aurelius, like he said stuff 2000 years ago and it's like, we're resonating with it now, 2000 years in the future. Right. Um, so you talked a lot about, uh, ways you're helping out other people. How can listeners listening in help out you guys? Or is there anything you'd put the collective will of, you know, listeners into a direction? either for you or for a cause that you care about? The first thing you can do is if you agree with what we're trying to do, what we're working on doing, wish us well. The combined wish, the thought, the positive thought of people who want to help out, that philosophically means a lot in the universe, okay? This positive energy that's out there. Uh, if you can do nothing else to help somebody, just give them positive thoughts. The second thing that you can do uh, is, if you want to reach out to us, uh, certainly you you we're, we're happy. If there's something we can do to help you, we're happy to do that. If there's something that you can offer us in this in this journey, in this journey of of you know when somebody says i want to feel i want to feed all the hungry people in the world right so you know that's not going to happen but if they didn't have this mission they wouldn't then the one two five ten or a hundred people who get fed wouldn't be fed by them so it, that's like the the wish the mission we have is to help everyone in the world sleep better sleep better so that they can live a better life, right? So 
in that mission, that's a, yeah, we're not, we're not, we know this is an impossible mission to help everybody sleep better in the world, but what it helps us do is reach out to more and more people and work with more and more people, people who think like us, people who want to be positive, people who want to make other people's lives better. So in that process, we always are looking for people who can be partners with us in doing that job. And it's global, so it's not limited to one place or the other. Like recently, I was looking for somebody who could translate and uh, put subtitles on my on the videos I made on different subjects uh, on, in sleep um, in different languages. So we have, uh, for example, an intern these days uh, working in our office who speaks Mandarin. He's a first generation immigrant. So he's helping create those subtitles in Mandarin. It's just, you know, so it's the, the positivity of just working with each other and helping out. And so from, there is no job, no work that is small. Um, you feel you can do something um, in, in this whole process, feel free. The, the entire journey, the entire process, the entire uh, work we do is not focused on making more money. Okay, It's focused on helping more people. That's the priority. It is a business, but the focus is helping more people. So in that process and helping more people across cultures, across borders, across time zones, anywhere, whether it's in Africa or Europe or Asia or whatever language, we want to be there. We want to help them. So we have started our part of what we, you know, people connections we have made already, people we know, friends we have, people we've connected with in, in some places, and we are making progress. But anybody's, you know, we're happy to talk to any. Sweet. Uh, there, uh, an idea that might be useful to you guys is not only just subtitling them in different languages, but even having people who are in those languages dub over them. There's a, a yeah. couple of YouTubers that have been doing that, and it's, it's you know, English as a language is like 10% of the internet. So there's like right. so much out there where if it's just in English, they won't even be able to touch right. by it. Right. And it, it it's so thanks to YouTube and, you know, other, uh, um, other media, everything's available to mo most people around the world. And people are looking for the right information and information that is credible, that's authentic, that is not out there to exploit them to, you know, to, to um, in, in some sort of way negative, it's positive trying to help them out. People are looking for it. And um, so, I mean, we may not have an office in a country in a, in a language that we have our videos in, but hey, if somebody listens to this and it helps them sleep better, that would be great for us. That would... So, I mean, I just give you an example, but there's, you know, oftentimes lots, lots of things that depending on your listeners and somebody says, hey, I, I think I could help, you know, welcome. You just, uh, send us an email or and talk to us and we're happy to have a conversation. And all the links to the how to contact them will be in the show notes for everyone listening in. Thank you for joining us today with the Learn With Lowell show. Check us out at learnwithlowell.com. Anywhere podcasts can be found. Subscribe. Tell me what you thought of this episode. Check us out on YouTube in particular. That's a new thing I'm doing. 
Uh, Timestamps and links are in the show notes. Thank you for coming. And I hope everyone, every one of you found something today that you're curious about to learn more about. And you'll go out and be curious and learn something new. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.